0: morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll take a look at our weather. Got a little bit of a warming trend out there. We'll talk about mental health today in our potpourri section, and we'll talk about territorial Wyoming. Continue on with that series. And finally, we'll look at Church Butte, a different view for everyone. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather on the sixth day of February, 2023. We did get through last week. It was a brutal start to the week. As I said in last week's podcast, the weather was dropping. Temperatures were bad. We ended up on Monday night at 28 below. We dropped the next few days. We stayed below zero, and it was definitely cold. And we finally started to warm up later in the week. And at the weekend, we actually got into the 30s. I did see 40 just briefly yesterday. So I guess right now we're enjoying what we can of this weather. I do see some snow showers in the forecast and this week, maybe on Wednesday and the following Wednesday. But nothing of any major type of storm at this point. Again, this time of year, weather can change pretty quick. I know that there's a long-range forecast of some more extreme cold weather moving in towards the end of February. But the snow that we have out there has been there for quite a while. Drifts are piled up around the countryside, and it is getting a little old. I know everybody I talked to has had enough of winter. And I think if I remember right, we talked about uh, Groundhog's Day, and I think we might have six more weeks of weather of what I heard. So I don't know. Six more weeks would put us into March, the 1st of April, potentially end of March. But again, here in the state of Wyoming, we can get some really big storms. Our spring storms have known to produce the most snow, most issues. But one thing about them, they don't last as long. Our days are longer and the temperatures will warm up a little bit, but we can get some pretty extreme weather. So right now we are just maybe kind of thawing out a little bit. We're enjoying the weather and just know that, hey, there's a change possibly right around the corner and we'll take it when it gets here. In Potpourri today, We have Marcy Hamilton on board. We're going to talk about mental health, what it means for everybody in our audience, and something that we're all facing. I'm going to turn it over to you, Marcy. What do you have for us today?
1: Today I wanted to touch on five mental health tips for Valentine's Day. With the upcoming holiday, often holidays can be a time where more people have mental health issues or things that come to the surface. So I think it's important to educate yourself on ways to kind of counter these feelings and know that you aren't alone if, if you're not having a great time during the holidays or it's kind of making you feel down or upset.
0: What, uh, what do you think are some ways around February 14th? What are some alternatives people could do?
1: So I think, uh, number one, for Valentine's Day, it's important to celebrate yourself. You got to remind yourself your most important relationship is with you. So it's important to realize that, you know, this is a good time to focus on your health, your self care. So focus on spending time doing things you enjoy a good workout, taking a bath, spending time with a good book, an at home spa night, buying yourself flowers. Um, Valentine's is a holiday and time to feel loved. So, fill your sh- So show yourself how much you love yourself.
0: Oh, good, Marcy. That sounds like some good things to do.
1: It's a good time to invest in all your relationships. I think it's important to remind yourself if you're feeling lonely, there's probably someone else out there that is as well. So it's a good day to send Valentine's Day cards to friends and family. Maybe bake cookies for your neighbor. Go visit someone in the nursing home. Just showing gratitude to people in your life that are there. And it doesn't have to be romantic. It can just be someone that you know has been struggling through a hard time. So I think it's important to remind yourself Valentine's is the day to remember other people and connections in your current life. I do want to add a, a real quick reminder that turning off social media is one of the number things that, Number one things I suggest to people because people are often posting their best life and I think we, can, we compare our behind-the-scenes to their you know, their edited posts, and I think it's also a time to remind yourself that there are people out there should you need some professional support. And also, if you're having feelings of hurting yourself or really need emergent support, contact 988. It's Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, and they can get you connected to providers in your own area. And I also suggest looking into online counseling. There's a lot of platforms, like the one I work on, BetterHelp, that can really get you connected to someone that if you need to talk or you need some solutions or just a neutral person to listen, there are options out there. And there's no shame in helping yourself and to remind yourself that holidays come and pass. And so doing whatever you need to to get through that day, that's all that matters.
0: Hey, Marcy, that's good stuff. And thanks for coming on board. And we look forward to talking to you in the future.
1: Thanks, Mark. Take care.
0: Today in sports, we want to kind of go off the track a little bit and continue on where we were last week, reading from the history of Wyoming from T.A. Larson. And we talked about territorial life here in the state of Wyoming. We talked about some of the activities that everyone did back then. Roller skating, cycling, and dancing were a few that we talked about, which seemed a little strange to me. Maybe the cycling club and... Roller skating just seemed like that would be something that people at that time would do. But continuing on, gambling was another favorite pastime for men. And the most common form of gambling were poker, keno, faro, wheel of fortune, roulette, and dice. Once in a while special opportunities were offered outside the halls at boxing matches, foot races, and horse races. Considerable money changed hands, noted the Cheyenne leader in August of 1868. In reporting a horse race between an Omaha horse and a Denver mare in Laramie in November 1874, more than $20,000 was reported to have changed hands at another horse race when miners from Carbon came in force to support a Carbon horse against a Laramie mare. The Carbon boys bet everything they could raise, and they went home broke. Mont Hathorn reported that the lankies of Carbon never looked ahead to nothing beyond Sunday morning and horse racing and shooting live pigeons on the wing. The Wyoming Growers Association and Convention in 1885 adopted a resolution forbidding horse racing and gambling at the roundups, whereas the racing of horses Destroys the usefulness of these animals and also consumes much valuable time. So there was a lot of people against the gambling. But gambling had an effect on a lot of people. And we talked about in in different parts of the state. In October of 1888, it was reported that Douglas had six Monte games going, which supplied a monthly revenue of $300, besides several poker games. No doubt, poker was a popular game in many places, besides gambling halls. John Charles Thompson summed it up in his Old Wyoming column. There have been some gosh-mighty poker games played here in Wyoming. Whole herds of cattle, complete ranches, changed hands at the flip of a whole card or a stud table back in the good old days when some very sporty chaps were raided among the cattle kings. Also, it also affected one of our congressmen here in the state. Gambling indirectly caused Wyoming's most famous congressman, Frank Mondell, to carry a forty five caliber bullet near his spine for most of his life. As mayor of Newcastle, in the winter of 1888-1890, he governed what he described as the banner-wide open town of all Northwest. By spring, however, when the boom was declining, there were too many gamblers and other undesirables for the need of the community. Mondale and the city council gave the marshal a list of 20 men who must leave town within 24 hours, whereupon a hotel keeper who had exceeded credit to some of the undesirables and wanted them to stay until he could collect shot Mayor Mondale. Picnicking was another one. Picnics in the mountains have always been important to Wyoming recreation. People in all communities of the territory went picnicking in the summer, although slow transportation or for many, complete lack of it, limited the possibilities of reaching many areas which later became popular resorts. Bill Nye wrote the following preferred camping to picnicking. The picnic is an aggravation. It has just enough civilization to be a nuisance, and not enough barbarism to make life seem a luxury. But to those who wish to forget the past and live only in the booming present, to get careless of gain and breathe brand new air that has never been used to appease an irritated liver or straighten out a torpid lung, let me say pick out a high dry climb where there are trout enough to give you an excuse to, for going there. Take what is absolutely necessary, no more, and then stay long enough to have some fun. Hunting and fishing was also some of the things that we did in territorial Wyoming. For the most part, pioneers did not hunt and fish, mainly because they lived in town and cities far from places where game and fish could be taken. But Evanston was better situated than other pioneer towns, judging by Miss Elizabeth Arnold Stone's comments that poor was considered the marksman who returned from a few hours ride in any direction with less than a dozen sage chickens on holiday parties were formed and the buckboards on the homeward trip were piled high with grouse and sage hens, as to be distributed among the town. Men who did not hunt were often able to take more meat than they could use. Non-hunting townsmen would buy wild meat at reasonable prices in the markets and sometimes from wagons on the street. Native trout were found in abundance in many parts of Wyoming but not in the North Platte drainage, where, for instance, Laramie citizens in 1868 thought suckers from the Laramie River were a delicacy. In western Wyoming, the Bear River gained an early reputation for its splendid native trout. In central Wyoming, Dr. Thomas Magee, who was stationed at Fort Washke, made this entry in his diary for July 10th of 1874. Dr. Page was down and got tight and made a fool of himself He broke my rod, cut my line, and lost my flies. Confound him! The heaviest assault upon the native trout occurred in 1876 when Crook's army, loafing on Big Goose Creek, caught 15,000 mainly on grasshoppers. Under an 1879 law, a fish commissioner in 1880 began planting eastern brook trout and carp in many streams and lakes to delight and disgust of future citizens. We also had clubs in territorial Wyoming. In the 1870s, a surprising number of business, professional, and political leaders were members of the Masonic Fraternity. Other clubs here in Wyoming were the Odd Fellows, good Templars, and the National Group of German, Scots, Irishmen, and Swedes were also prominent, and the Grand Army of the Republic became so in 1880. Cheyenne Cattlemen organized their famous Cheyenne Club first briefly known as the Cactus Club in 1880, and in the following year built their clubhouse. The membership was first limited to 50 men. The initiation fee set at $50, and dues were set at $30 a year. In territorial times, the women also had clubs. Among the women's clubs were the Alpha Club, the Beta Club, and the Queen Anne Club. The Alpha and Beta Clubs were busy discussing William Colin Bryant, while the Queen Anne Club ladies were studying Browning. Cheyenne had its mixed clubs, also such as the Twenty-One, the Pedro Club, and the Social Swim Club. Whilst forerunner of bridge was becoming popular, besides card parties were or high teas, dinners, and dances to keep the ladies busy. Libraries also were part of territorial life. In 1886, the legislature authorized the setting up of a free county libraries. When the county commissioners of any county had received guarantees from citizens, associations, or corporations that a suitable place would be furnished for a public library, they would levy up to one half mill on all taxable property for the establishment and maintenance of a public library in the county seat. Churches, as we talked about somewhat last time, we did have churches here in territorial Wyoming the Methodists, Episcopals, Presbyterians. Baptists, Roman Catholics, and Mormon churches were active in Wyoming before the territory was organized. Congressionalists became active in 1869. A Methodist, Dr. Scott had been credited with preaching the first sermon in Cheyenne in September of 1867. Much earlier, Wyoming's first Protestant sermon was preached by the Rev. Samuel Parker near present-day Bondurant in 1835, and the first Catholic Mass with more than just a few in attendance, was celebrated by Father Pierre-Jean D. Smit at the Green River Rendezvous near present-day Pinedale in 1840. The first regularly stationed clergyman in Wyoming was the Rev. William Vox. He was an Episcopal Army chaplain at Fort Laramie from 1849 to 1862. It's absolutely entertaining to read about territorial life here in the state of Wyoming and how it shaped our state of Wyoming to where we are today. And finally, from wildhistory.org, Church Butte by Randy Brown. Church Butte is a soft sandstone and clay landform standing alone to the left of the Oregon-California Trail as it heads southwest towards Fort Bridger. The Butte was an important landmark on the route between Green River and Fort Bridger and is located about 10 miles southwest of present Granger, Wyoming, adjacent to a gravel road that once was a branch of the U.S. Highway 30. At its highest point, the butte rises about a 100 feet above the surrounding prairies. Except for nearby gas wells, the area is now deserted and just as desolate as it was in the trail days. Though so At one time, a busy service station stood just across the road. The name Church Butte did not come into general use until 1850. Before that, immigrants, if they called the landmark anything, made up their own names, often comparing it to knobs and eroded towers to imaginary castles and pyramids. An early use of a name involving the word church comes from Howard Stansbury, an Army officer returning with his survey expedition from Salt Lake City, on September 12, 1850, Stansbury wrote, Struck out of the bottom of Black Fork and re-entered the road rising a hill to Church Hill. Followed the road for about three or four miles over a level country of sand, clay, and vegetation. Civilian Albert Carrington was with Stansbury's Outfit and on the same day wrote, Rose into the first stable and went nearly east to the old road. Near the church, an isolated cliff of brown and green clay and brown sandstone, which was worn by the elements into fantastical shapes as mirinets, spirals, aisles, and capped by domes, traveled on Old Road and soon left on the left. Stansbury and Carrington probably heard the butte called the church by Mormons in Salt Lake City as, in various times, church services conducted by Mormon companies heading for the city may have been held there. One of the earliest descriptions of Church Butte comes from John Boardman, an Oregon immigrant of 1843. Boardman's report predates Mormon companies by four years and the 49ers by six. He passed on August 12, 1843, and seems to have been very impressed with the Butte's appearance. Cross Black Fork and past Solomon's Temple, a singular mound of clay and stone of the shape of a large temple, and decorated with all kinds of images, gods and goddesses, everything that has ever been the subject of the sculpture, all kinds of animals and creeping things, and everything the art has manufactured or brought into notice, a magnificent and striking sight. Pardon D. Tiffany was a member of the Pioneer Line, a commercial enterprise, that took paying customers over the trail to California for a fee and came to the Butte on July 28, 1849. Tiffany wrote, Between the second and third crossing of Black's Fork, there is a remnant of a clay range of bluffs near and on the left of the road, the first stone of which appears to be nearly stone and wind. Rain has worked the top edges and the tops into many curious shapes. The soil of clay for a long time past has been cut up in a worse condition than St. Louis dust fills the eyes and mouth during high winds. Three days after David Staples called the line of buttes to the left of the road the Rainbow Bluffs and mentioned Church Butte, explaining our road ran along near the Rainbow Bluffs, they derived their names from the different colors of clay and mixed sands up the sides, we notice one prominent bluff whose side presented with a little stretch of imagination every variety of forms, groups of men, heads of animals, and it looked like an Egyptian architect. In 1852, Oregon immigrant Marriott Cummings thought Church Butte was the most impressive trail landmark she had ever seen and had a unique name for it. On June 29th, she wrote, past the most magnificent curiosity I had ever seen on the road. It was a stupendous rock of petrified clay and sandstone of blue and light and dark brown colors. There were spires and domes, grottos and claves of every form and size. It was immensely high and colonnaded. One's voice would reverberate several times. We called it Echo Rock. Frederick H. Percy saw Church Butte in 1853, and in his description, he let his imagination run wild. Just before arriving at Black Fork, number three, where we camped, we passed a splendid range of clay bluffs which, as we passed them, seemed covered with figures in almost all attitudes, nuns confessing to priests, and the warriors fighting and transforming and burying themselves as we changed our position. Finally, British adventurer and travel writer Richard Burton, aboard the Overland Stage on his way to Salt Lake City, arrived on August 7th of 1860 and compared the scenic Butte to cathedrals he had seen in his native England. Burton wrote, After 12 miles we passed Church Butte, one of the many curious formations lying to the left or south of the road. This isolated mass of stiff clay had been cut and ground by wind and water into folds and hollow channels, which from a distance perfectly simulate the pillars, groins, and massive buttresses of ruinous Gothic cathedral. The foundation is level, except where masses have been swept down by the rain, and not a blade of grass grows upon any part. An architect of genius might profitably study this work of nature. Upon that subject, however, I shall presently have more to say. The butte is highly interesting in a geological point of view. It shows the elevation of the adjoining plains and ages, before spartial deluge and rains of centuries that affected the great work of dedication. Burton's description works just as well today as it did in 1860. Made as it is of soft sandstone, church butte, might be expected to be eroding very rapidly. A plaque placed in 1930 to honor Mormon pioneers has been dislodged by erosion. Still, comparisons with photos from the 1800s show the Butte looking very much the same then as it does now. Just another outstanding story of the state of Wyoming and the travelers, the pioneers that went across our state. And it's amazing some of the sites that they saw. And what I just love is the descriptions of a place like Church Butte. And I guess that's a place that I put on the to visit again this summer. And let's take another look at that and see what we might see as we travel by. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming.